It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law, featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Soren Lehu, an attorney at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys that focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to maukbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Or call us at 312-726-1243. Do you ever get into debates about your faith? Are you adequately prepared to defend what you believe and why? Today, we'll be speaking with Clark Bates, an apologist and the founder of Exegesis, a website with evidence and defense for the Christian faith for both believers and skeptics alike. As someone whose own faith has been challenged, Clark believes that every Christian should be confident and able to give a defense for what they hold to be true. Clark, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Clark, I want to start by uh, discussing the name of your ministry, Exegesis, and it's spelled E-X-E-J-E-S-U-S, Exegesis. Uh, I thought yeah. that it was a really creative name. Um, how did you come up with the name for your ministry? Sure, yeah. This was an example of me trying to be creative, but also not realizing that quite a few people don't actually know what the term exegesis means. <laughs> uh, so uh, just to, to make sure everybody is familiar, the, the actual word exegesis, which is spelled E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S, is a term that is used often in seminaries, but it is gets circulated around that basically means properly interpreting Scripture. So uh, generally speaking, it's a combination of two words from the Greek uh, meaning to draw out from. And so what, when you apply exegesis to a book or to a text or to the Bible, you're allowing the message that's in the text speak to you. Now, the opposite of that would be called eisegesis, which is to actually read your interpretation into the text, and that happens quite a lot. So that's what the terms, the real terms, mean. Now, as I was thinking through this before I had, I actually I named uh, the ministry, I, it came to mind that in John 5.39, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he tells them that you study the Scriptures because you think that in them you'll find eternal life, but these same Scriptures testify about me. And then again, we read in Luke 24 or 27 on the road to Emmaus that uh, when Jesus is speaking to these two individuals, uh, it says that he sits down with them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them the things that are written about himself in the Scriptures. So it just dawned on me that if we are letting the message of Scripture speak to us, that message is Jesus. And so it's kind of a play on words that if, if you're going to... Uh, do an exegetical reading of the Bible, and you naturally have to come away with the message of Jesus. I love that. That's great. And when we discuss uh, apologetics, many people uh, assume you need to go straight to philosophy and science and all of those topics, but uh, a lot of apologetics really begins with studying the scriptures themselves. Am I right, Clark? I would certainly say so, and I know there's there's a lot of different fields of approach in apologetics. It's a very wide uh, type of ministry. 
but I believe that as Christians, if we're going to be Christian apologists, first and foremost, um, I mean, the Bible, the Word of God, is the foundation for all that we believe. So if you're not familiar (laughs) with the very documents that explain our faith, it's going to be very difficult to be effective in defending it. So as much as uh, different philosophy, uh, philosophical arguments might help, as much as um, training in science can help, I think it, it really has to start with your understanding of the Word of God, because that's really what we're trying to get back to. We're trying to bring people to understanding and believing in Christ, and you can't really explain that without going back to the Word of God. So yeah, I think, I think for Christians as apologists, it really has to begin there. And that requires, doesn't it, Clark, uh, actually reading the Word yourself instead of perhaps um, listening to sermons or or taking other people's uh, word for it. There's value um, in you actually doing the hard work and putting in the study time and and opening those pages and um, studying and, and searching the Scriptures yourself. Oh, absolutely. I think there's an old adage um, that if you want to learn, teach. And uh, kind of the idea is that if you have to teach a subject, uh, that's the best way to learn a subject because you're going to dig into it. You're going to have to know it well enough to convey it to somebody else. And, you know, the devotional life of a Christian is, is immensely important. It's not just reading the Bible so that we can teach it, but so that it gets into us and that we have this relationship with the Lord, which is going to fuel any apologetics. And while I don't, and I don't want to discourage people from listening to sermons or reading in a commentary or getting so many of the resources that are made available to us. Um, God has worked through many men and women uh, in writing different things about the scriptures that are very powerful um, that we can learn from. But again, as you said, that shouldn't replace our own time in the Word, and we should be letting, you know, the Holy Spirit speak to us through what we read. We should be letting that message kind of infiltrate our life and our actions. Uh, We have this great example in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 17, with the people of Berea. When Paul came to them and he preached the message of Jesus, it says that they didn't just take him at his word, but that they, they tested everything he said based on the Scriptures. And it's interesting, because right before that, he had gone to Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, and um, they had believed on him without looking at anything, and the Bereans are actually said to be more noble than the Thessalonians. Not that the Thessalonians were bad for believing, but that the Bereans were more noble because they were willing to test the message through scriptures. And of course, we want to try to be ourselves to be more noble in what we do. So I think a a focused study on the Word of God as, as daily as possible is really important, and it's very easy to lose sight of that. That's great. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Soren Lehu of the law firm of Malkin Baker. If you missed part of this episode or want to hear previous Lawyers for Jesus interviews, visit malkbaker.com. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, we've been speaking with Clark Bates, apologist and founder of Exegesis, about Christian apologetics. Uh, Clark, I want to throw out a, a big question, and, and we can go in different directions, I suppose. But the question is, how can we trust the Bible in the first place? Yeah, that's definitely a big question. Um, when, when we ask that question, I think there's a couple different ways that we're, we, that word might be being used, that word trust. You know, can we trust it historically? Um, can we trust it 
you know, textually, is the text that we have the right one? Um, can we trust it doctrinally? I mean, is it teaching a, a proper message? There's a couple different directions that goes. So I think if we were just conversing with somebody and that's what they asked, I'd want to know specifically what they mean. But, um, you know, if you want to trust it historically, of course, archaeology has demonstrated multiple times that the places and various people and events in the Bible have been confirmed to be historically accurate. So at, at the very basic level, it, it conveys actual historical truth. Um, textually speaking, as far as the documents themselves, I mean, even the most skeptical of, of scholars in textual studies will admit that the New Testament alone it has the best evidence for its manuscript tradition than any other ancient document. So we can be fairly confident, highly confident, I would say, that what we have is, is accurate to what the message was originally. I think whether we can trust it doctrinally, though, is going to be a, it's going to be a different story. That's going to be the difference between believing in certain facts versus allowing those facts to take, take root inside. So it's essentially saying, am I going to follow the message of this because it's true? And that, that's a kind of a different element. But just as an example, if you can trust it doctrinally, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, if, if everyone, were to on the, everyone on the planet were to follow the New Testament teaching on marriage, for instance, the principles of marriage, there would actually be no divorce, there would be no spousal abuse, there'd be no infidelity, there'd be no abortions, there'd be no unwed mothers, um, there'd be very few single-parent homes, um, and that alone would completely change the landscape of the next generation of people. So if we're talking about following the message of the Bible, I think you can point out various examples in which it would positively change the lives of everyone. Yes. And Clark, do you need to be a biblical scholar in order to defend the reliability of the, of the Bible? Or can, can an average Joe have a discussion about this with, with someone who's a skeptic? Oh, no, absolutely. You can, you can definitely do this without being a biblical scholar. It can be overwhelming. Um, and I, there, sure, there are very technical approaches to these questions. I mean, especially if you're talking about manuscript evidence and things like that, they, sometimes that gets very involved. But a lot of what I like to teach churches when I'm going around or, or speaking at conferences is actually defending some of the reliability of the Bible with the very Bible in front of them. Um, and there are ways to look at Scripture uh, and see what, they, what it says, especially the Gospels, but this is true in all of it, um, that actually point to uh, the reliability of its historical evidence, even to the reliability of the the witnesses of the of the of the authors themselves, um, and the truth of what they're saying, and that goes a long way. Uh, rather than having to you know go to resources online or try to get a degree that maybe you can't afford, and believe it or not, you can actually just open your Bible and uh, with a little bit of guidance be shown to see exactly how it says what it says. That's great, and I do want to get into those specifics, but we only have about uh, 40 seconds left in, in the segment before we come back to that. Uh, but you did mention archaeology, and I do want to uh, just share one thing that my pastor has always taught us, is that, um, as you mentioned, archaeology continues to um, prove the facts of the Bible, and he took it a step further, and he said, archaeology has never disproved anything in the Bible. And so I've always found that fascinating. I do want to get into specifics. Uh, coming up, we will talk further with Clark Bates, apologist and founder of Exegesis Ministries.
In the wide, confusing world of law and lawyers, it's tough to find someone you can trust that shares your Christian values for legal advice and representation. You can trust Mauk & Baker, a Christian law firm based in Chicago that serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals with their legal matters. They seek to represent clients like you with integrity and care by using biblical principles as the foundation of their work. Additionally, their monthly newsletter highlights what's current in the religious liberty arena, keeping you informed on your right to worship or the that's on the street, in public school, or within the walls of your church. Subscribe to their newsletter at maukbaker.com slash newsletter. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com slash newsletter. If you have a legal need or question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact Mauk and Baker at 312-726-1243. Call and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. That's 312-726-1243. 43. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Soren Lehu, an attorney at Mauk and Baker, a law firm based in Chicago which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of the show and want to listen online, go to maukbaker.com forward slash radio. Today we've been speaking with Clark Bates, an apologist and founder of Exegesis Ministries about Christian apologetics. Clark, we were talking about uh, the reliability of the scriptures, and we started going into um, arguments and evidence in the scriptures themselves. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Absolutely, yeah. And this is, I think this is a fascinating approach, um, because for a lot of Christians, we don't, we don't read our Bible um, kind of as a history book. <laughs> you know, we're reading it for devotional purposes and things like that, and sometimes we lose sight of some of the details. In fact, we get so familiar with a lot of the stories that we, we don't think about the details. And it's amazing what you would find. Now, I give generally a lot of examples from the Gospels, and I'll give you a few of those too, but you can do this with the Old Testament as well. And one of my favorite Old Testament examples comes from the book of Judges, and it's the, the story of Samson. Now, everybody knows the story of Samson that's been in Sunday school at least or has been familiar with um, some Bible study. And, of course, Samson being uh, the enemy of the Philistines, the hero of the Jews, is eventually taken captive, uh, and his hair has been cut, and he's weak. And it says they, you know, they take out his eyes, and the Philistines uh, have him as a slave. And he has one last chance to, to destroy the Philistines. And so they bring him out to kind of mock him. And he's prayed to the Lord to give him strength one last time. And the story goes that they, they, take, they bring Samson out, and the boy that's holding him has, places his hands on two pillars. Um, and, of course, in the story, Samson pushes the pillars down, and the entire thing collapses on all of them, and he has one last victory over the Philistines. Now, the funny thing is, the, the fact that it says pillars is very odd. The Jews don't build anything with pillars. In fact, nobody in, the, in that region, no one that was, would be considered a Semite, used pillars. So for a lot of time, uh, for a long time, people would look at that and say, There's, "This is completely anachronistic. They're writing this from a different time period." But as we've studied the Philistine people over the years, it's quite clear that the Philistines were not nomads like the uh, the Jews were, or even like anybody else in that community. They are sea people, which, uh, as we trace their progression, they're actually from Greece. They're very, very early Greeks. We might even call them Phoenicians at this point. And what we do find in Phoenician architecture is the use of pillars. They use pillars for everything. And all you have to do is think of Greek architecture, and you can think of all the columns 
that you see even, even in the ruins of Greece now, and that's always been their way of building. So actually, when the book of Judges places Samson in a Philistine temple, the thing that you would find that would be different than everywhere else were pillars. And that little tiny detail that we often overlook actually confirms a historical element to the story that anybody that wouldn't know that wouldn't write it. And it would be very hard for somebody who hadn't been familiar with Philistine people to write that story at that time. So it's just one of that's a small detail in the Old Testament. There's a lot more. Um, and you see the same thing uh, in the New Testament. So if we, if we like, so we read the Gospels. Okay, this is one of my favorites, is, is the use of names in the Gospels. So if I am studying a book of an ancient document, I am testing it to find out if it's accurate as what it claims to be, basically a document written about a certain time period from the perspective of people that were there. And so there's different things you can, you can test on it. And one of the things you can test is the use of names. Now, if you think about it, if you were uh, told that you had to write a report about let's say France in the 12th century, and you had to use names and you had to use accurate names, but you were not given any access to Google or Wikipedia, how well do you think you could come up with the proper names used in France in the 12th century on your own? Probably not well. Yeah, probably not well. I don't think I could do it. And I, I like to joke with people, I probably couldn't do it about, with names in the beginning of Illinois history either. Um, and so, you know, the only way you would know that accurately is if you were there, if you were familiar with the people of the time. And the thing is, names, popular names change. They, always, they change throughout the centuries. They change in location. So the popular names in one region are not going to be the popular names in another. And archaeology has shown us uh, through the use of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the New Testament, the writings of historians like Josephus, and even the inscriptions on different tombs, what those names were for the first century in Israel. And what we find is that of the top 11 names, nine of them are popular in the New Testament. They all are consistent. And one of the most popular, of course, is Simon. And we find that in the New Testament, Jesus has several Simons that, were, that are following him, and there are other Simons that are there. Jesus is another popular name. Uh, Joseph is another popular name. So we, we find this uh, throughout that. Now, if you were to check the popular Jewish names in another region, say Egypt, at the same time, those names are completely different. In fact, the most popular Egyptian Jewish name at that time was Eleazar. Uh, and there are no Eleazars in the New Testament. So what, what that does, and that might not seem like a big deal, but for someone who's studying it for accuracy, what it means is that the person writing the Gospels uses the right names at the right time, in the right place. And he did this in a time period where people didn't travel very often, so it would be almost impossible to the degree that it practically is impossible for anyone to have known those names unless they were there. And another great example of how that works out is the fact that anytime it's a popular name like Jesus, or Mary, for instance, for women, or even Simon, these are the most popular names, Anytime they're mentioned, they use this technique that we would call disambiguation, which these days we use last names. So if there's two people named John, one's probably John Smith and the other one might be John Lewis. And that's how you know who is who. But they didn't do that back then. So what you find is that when they have to distinguish between a person 
who is, has a popular name, they add something. In the case of Simon, when you have Simon Peter. So if he's speaking to Peter, he says Simon Peter. If he's speaking to a different one, you have Simon the Zealot or Simon the Cyrene. In every instance, it's a popular name. That name is disambiguated. There's something attached to it. So the reader knows exactly who he's talking about. And that's a, it's a, huge, a huge deal when someone is writing a story and they know that this name could be confused with another Simon that's also there. So I need to tell people which Simon I'm speaking about. And again, the only way that person's going to know that is if they are familiar with these people at that time in that place. And this is the same with Jesus' name. It's the same with Mary's name. Anytime you find those names, they have something attached to them, whether it be Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, King of the Jews, Jesus who is called Christ, you know, Mary of Bethany, all those things always come up. And it's just a fascinating detail that we overlook because we're used to the stories. But it points to this reliability, and there's a lot of other ways you can do that as well. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Soren Lehu of Malkin Baker, and we're talking to Clark Bates, apologist and founder of Exegesis Ministries, about the reliability of the scriptures. Uh, Clark, I, I also want to ask about the resurrection, because it's such a cornerstone of the Christian faith. Uh, it, are, th- are there any good reasons, any evidence we can point to for believing that the resurrection actually happened? Oh, absolutely. I think, well, I think what we have when we talk about evidence for the resurrection is largely what we're talking about is evidence for the belief in Christianity. And we have this hole. If you can think about it like a hole in a, in a piece of paper. And you have this storyline that is all around the piece of paper, and then there's this hole that only one thing can explain, and that would be the resurrection. So when we talk about evidence for the resurrection, what we have is multiple uh, messages, multiple historical records of a man named Jesus who existed, in uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, from the words of Josephus, from the words of Tacitus, Roman, Jewish, Greek historians all mention that this person existed. And they mention that he was put to death on a cross by Pontius Pilate. So this, this is a recorded event in history, that we know this man existed, he had a following, he was put to death on a cross by Pontius Pilate. Then you have the hole in history. And immediately after that hole, within less than 20 years in some cases, you have other Roman uh, leaders and governors writing to men like Trajan, the, uh, the ruler at the time, asking, what do I do with all these people that are called Christians? They follow this man who was crucified named Christ, and they're spreading their message, and many of the people are being disrupted by it. They're not, they're not sacrificing to the gods anymore. They're not offering incense to Caesar anymore. How am I supposed to deal with this? And you, you have these writings, even in the, the New Testament, that Christianity spread rapidly and, and quickly throughout the, uh, not only throughout Jerusalem, but into the Greco-Roman world. And then, the, so the question has to ask, this man was definitely crucified. And after the fact, we definitely have people that are moving around spreading the message. What's more, they seem to be spreading the fact that he didn't die or that they saw him. And so what explains that? That's the question we end up asking. So when, and the only thing that can answer that whole is found in the message of the Gospels, it's found in the message of Paul's letters, is that mm-hmm. these men and women that followed him believed that they saw this very man back again three days later. 
That's great. Clark, thank you for speaking with us today. How can people learn more about you and your ministry? Absolutely. Um, they can find out more from me at uh, exegesus.com. That's E-X-E-J-E-S-U-S dot com. E-X-E-J-E-S-U-S dot com. And they can contact me through the website. If you have a legal need or a question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at malkbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website to subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I'm Soren Lehu, attorney at Malkin Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.